This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. I dropped out of an elite university and I couldn't be happier. No, I'm not talking about myself because I would have had to first attend an elite university in order to uh, drop out from one, which I did not. But I'm talking about the topic of the show today uh, and the guests that we're going to be speaking with. We've got two guests. First, Zach Slayback is back on the show. Zach, welcome. Isaac, thanks. And we want to talk about the experiences of Zach and later Derek McGill uh, dropping out of not just any universities, but elite universities, places that people um, work really hard to get into and that are seen as a, a surefire ticket to success. So, Zach, starting with you, I mean, you spent the majority of your ch- childhood. That sounds kind of sad when I word it that way. I mean, it is, it is kind of sad. <laughs> the majority of your childhood, middle school, high school especially, um, working very hard to get into a good school and you got accepted to Penn. Uh, and you, not only did you get accepted, you got some, some scholarships and you were there for a while, but you left. So why did you decide that college wasn't good enough for you? Well, before I think I can really answer that question, I want to back up a little bit and ask, you know, why do people who are traditionally good students strive to, you know, get into an elite university or just strive to be good students. And for me, uh, even before I was focusing specifically on getting into Penn, which was my first choice uh, for a school, I really, I, I, there was something I enjoyed about being a good student and it wasn't necessarily, you know, getting the pats on the head and being told, oh, you're so smart. Yay. Um, it was more so if you're a good student, people leave you alone, Right. Uh, if you're a good student, the teachers don't have to come and worry about you uh, when test co- time comes around. They let you go off and do your own thing. I, I think we've talked about this before, actually. And it, it doesn't really change with college, right? If you're somebody who recognizes that you can do a lot of things with your time, through high school, you're going to find yourself really annoyed. You're going to find yourself thinking like, uh, I, I wish I could take classes that actually interest me uh, on topics that actually interest me. And everybody tells you from, you know, your parents to the school counselors to your teachers that, look, there is a place that you can do this and it's college. So you strive to get into a good college because you see it as freedom in the same way that you strive to be a good student so you don't have to be annoyed when test time comes around. And that's what it meant for me. I would and, be able to... And you didn't feel like you found that freedom when you went to Penn? No. Um, I think that a lot of the institutional problems that I had in high school uh, that... I found really quite limiting resurfaced at Penn. um, And I think they do at a lot of elite universities. There's, there's a growing set of literature on this Uh, in the last two years alone. A couple of books that have kind of touched on this uh, have come out, which we can talk about later if we want. Um, But what was before kind of like a formal institutional problem, right? About like the structure of the school, the structure of the exams and things like that uh, found itself kind of re-envisioned uh, at the college level as more of a cultural issue. So kind of like an informal institutional problem. Um, a lot of the anxiety that was around, you know, getting into college has was then put on to, you know, getting into that summer internship uh, in Chicago or Boston or New York or San Francisco, which then eventually came to, uh, you know, making sure that you nail that 
you nail that uh, interview on on-campus recruiting. There, there, there were kids sophomore year, sophomore year of, of college, uh, reading books about nailing on-campus recruiting interviews that you do at the end of your junior year, the beginning of your senior year uh, with big finance firms. And and how many of these I, students seem like they were genuinely passionate about doing that kind of work and like that was really where they wanted to be? Or was it just sort of a series of escalating uh, higher and higher bars that are all really stressful and no one's even entirely sure if that's where they want to end up in life is working it, at Goldman? It was definitely the latter. And for me, there was one thing that I noticed uh, going into college. I, I had a lot of acquaintances, a couple of friends that I'd met through. You know, I was involved in like a, a billion extracurriculars in high school, like any uh, high achieving student who gets into a school like this. And I'd met a lot of people and a lot of them ended up going to Penn. They either went to the college or they went to Wharton or they went to engineering, but they were at the university in one way or another. And before they came in, I had spoken to them and I'd known like they had certain dreams and desires and aspirations. You know, some of them wanted to be uh, entrepreneurs. Some of them did want to go into finance. Some of them wanted to be engineers. Some of them wanted to be poets and authors and things like that. Uh, but the vast, vast majority of them, especially by the end of my sophomore year, when I decided that I, I was going to leave, uh, they were just focused on, you know, I, I need to get into a first page uh, law school, or I need to get into, you know, Goldman or uh, someplace like that. And so very few of them, I think, who actually pursue things like that, know why they're pursuing it. They just kind of, it's its the same when I think when they're pursuing college, honestly. Uh, they just know that it's something that they, they have to pursue. There was an article I saw go across my Facebook timeline recently. It was like, these are the top 12 universities that when you get in, you just go. And I, and I, I find that, I found that interesting, right? Um, because I think it's kind of the same thing for people when they get into like an internship on Wall Street or an internship in certain Silicon Valley firms. Um, Capitol or, Hill know, for some Capitol people. Capitol Hill. I was going to say they, they, they become a, uh, an intern at a bureaucracy somewhere in D.C. Um, when you get offered that, you just don't say no. Because if you do, you know, there's a bunch of other people who are going to say yes to it. And it's, it's the same kind of mentality, just kind of continued several years later. So there's an interesting, you know, conversation, growing conversation about, hey, look, uh, maybe a, a college degree is not worth as much anymore. The value is declining. So many people are getting them. There's there's a lot of schools that, frankly, have become little more than uh, degree factories spitting them out. So, yeah, it's true. Maybe a degree isn't that valuable. But it's always stated with the exception of, a handful of kind of Ivy League places, really elite places, those places, it's really valuable. And, you know, if you're able to get in there, basically you should do it no matter what, which is kind of what the article alluded to. Do you think that the critique or uh, the way, the reasons to, to rethink the, you know, just go to college no matter what narrative apply a little bit less to elite universities or even a little bit more? In other words, are you saying that there's something unique about elite universities that actually makes them worse in some way? Or um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think the argument applies uh, much more strongly to elite universities. Uh, to back up for a second. And, so, so you would say, hey, maybe you should reconsider going to college, uh, especially if you're at a, an elite university. Would you be willing to go that far? I would, yeah. Uh, it depends on the student, though. I think that if you're a student who's just kind of like right on the cusp of whether or not 
like you don't know what you want to do and uh and you're going to get into a school like that and you're just right on the margin so you'd be a below average student at a university like this statistically speaking yeah it's going to yield more value for you than if you're uh in, in terms of in terms of earning power you're talking in, about in terms of earning power right. uh if you're an average student in an elite university, then you there you're you're on the higher end of the bell curve, um, probably uh, compared to most people, uh, and especially if you're a good student at one of those universities, then I would definitely say you're too good for one of those universities. Um, I, I do want to confront that 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 common argument though that it's like oh you know the all the arguments about the strength of the degree weakening sure they're, they're true, but there are these some of these insulated universities where that hasn't quite been the case yet. And I, I, I think the really important question that people don't ask themselves is the value or the strength of the degree for what, right? If you do really want to, you know, go work on Wall Street or go work, um, you know, in, in one of those kinds of industries that these schools tend to just feed people to, absolutely go to Penn, absolutely go to Stanford, go to uh, Princeton, go to Cornell, uh, because that's where those firms recruit from. They, it's, it's just a, a pure like logistics game there like goldman sachs will drop half a million dollars on a recruiting party at penn because it's worth them it's worth it to them if they can yield 10 people at you know 60k each um but if you're somebody who has big aspirations for building your own life for achieving your own things and uh even if you don't know what those are yet I would really caution you against attending one of these universities because there's again it's, it's it's a weird cultural issue right so like everybody nobody designs culture but everybody kind of reinforces it in one way or another so there's nobody that you can really point a finger at and say ah it's this person's fault or it's this institution's fault but it's a really like perverse set of institutions there yeah and there's a weird way in which credentials can be dangerous, not just because maybe they're not as valuable as people think, but sometimes because they are really valuable. I mean, I know in my own case, there are several ways in which, you know, I, I got a master's degree years after my undergrad, like while I was working, I was doing night classes and I really enjoyed the material. It was stuff that I liked reading anyway, and I was largely reading anyway. Um, but the degree itself, that credential I actually think it changed me in in some negative ways. It made me less creative and less focused on earning a reputation that would allow me to to open some doors I was interested in. Like I really enjoy teaching and lecturing on economics, political philosophy, and I wanted to, you know, maybe teach some classes and do some seminars and conferences. And so I thought, well, I don't really know how to become one of those people. Uh, so I guess if I get a master's degree, that will do the trick. Well, I got the degree and realized, hmm, I still don't really have any reputation that would make someone want to hire me as a lecturer at a conference or have me teach a class. Uh, I guess <laughs> I guess I need to actually produce something. And I started doing a lot more writing. I started doing as many sort of free speaking gigs or even just introducing a speaker as I could. I taught a homeschool class and I started to build a network and reputation. And then I got invited to lecture at a fee seminar and they never asked, do you have a master's degree? In fact, I ended up removing it from my bio uh, after a little while because I didn't think it really added anything to, to what I bring to the table. And I, I kind of had to earn it on my own reputation anyway. The point being, I think the credential and, and to the extent that it's perceived as a valuable credential or actually is, can often um, keep you from doing some of the hard work of learning 
who you are, what you're good at, what you can produce and proving it to the world. And so now that you've got this really great credential, this elite degree from a, from an Ivy league school, you kind of feel like you have to use it and you have to go get things that only that degree will open up. And, and you sort of don't invest in the other kind of signals you could have to the rest of the world um, that may lead you to something you like more. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, there was one thing I heard a lot at Penn, you know, and, and I've, I've started to see it more in some of the literature that I mentioned that on the, this kind of topic, uh, that if you go pursue something that doesn't pay like X amount or isn't in like X, uh, A, B or C industries, that's considered quote unquote, a waste of an Ivy League degree or a waste of a Penn degree. Um, if you if you don't go land a job, you know, in Silicon Valley and Wall Street doing consulting finance, something like that, uh, or doing Teach for America or a internship on Capitol Hill, then it's then people kind of look at you like, okay, well, why didn't you just go to like Pitt then or like some you know more common school? Uh, and people definitely feel that pressure. I think even more dangerous is for people who are uh, from lower income backgrounds and we're speaking lower income relative to the Ivy League. So who are probably middle class uh, among most people who have to take out 10, 20, $30,000 in loans to attend four years at Penn. And which of course, everyone's telling them, you know, like just do it, just do it. It's absolutely worth it. This is one uh, how of those much, situations. How much is, is full tuition at Penn for four years? Oh, it's for four years. Uh, we're looking at more than a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Um, but most NYU, people are, are getting some kind of grant or scholarship, you think? Uh, a lot of people are, but it's a smaller number than you think because you see all these articles or, or the, you see a lot of articles uh, or comments on Facebook. You know, professors like to say, well, few people actually end up paying that price tag. Yeah, but a lot of people end up do actually paying it because how that's calculated is it's it's the total um, family income. So you might have a situation where you have one parent, you know, making $150,000 a year and you have another parent making $40,000 a year. Maybe the student actually grew up with and is primarily funded by the parent making $45,000 a year. The school calculates that as one net income between the two of them. So, so for people with, um, you know, not not as much money getting a lot, going into a lot of debt for that elite credential only increases the pressure to do a job that, that requires that credential and that pays higher whether or not they really enjoy it. And that's what they love. I mean, you see this with, with law school all the time, the number of lawyers I know who, who hate their life, but have to do it because it's the only thing that will pay off their, their debt is, is pretty, pretty astounding. Right. Or it pushes them to uh, continue putting off paying back the loans. So they, they go to graduate school or they go work at some government bureaucracy where their loans will be forgiven after X number of years. Um, when in reality, that's not necessarily what they want to do. Um, I get the feeling you don't like government bureaucracy. I, I have no idea where you're getting that from. <laughs> Is that, um, did you have a recent experience at the State Department getting a passport or something? I don't um, know. Just that, curious. That, that may have that may have been the case. Yes. Um, well, well, so Zach, let me let me ask you something. There, there, so, there, oh, go ahead. Other, go ahead. There are two other things here, though, too, that I think are, are really really worrisome uh, on the idea of the cost of the credential. Uh, the one is if you're getting a liberal arts degree, so you're not going uh, to, into finance, or you're not going into tech at one of these universities. You feel especially. Uh, pressured to pursue a very traditional path with that degree. So you're getting a, let's say, a social anthropology degree. I have, I have a friend I was speaking to recently who was telling me, you know, I hate, uh, you know, I, I hate 
this type of organization. They're so useless. There's no way you're going to fix them. The incentives are all screwy. Uh, And, you know, my, they're all, they're all horrible. And she just worked with one, you know, over the last semester and over the summer. Uh, And somehow later in the conversation, we got on a topic of, I I asked her, I'm like, okay, so what do you plan on doing when you graduate? And she, she's like, well, I can either go to graduate school or I can go work for one of these organizations that she was talking about just a minute ago. How much she hates. (laughs) (laughs) But doing anything else with a, uh, with a degree from what is perceived to be a high power school uh, is really is going to be frowned upon by, by many people, by people in that industry, by the professors, uh, by friends and by family. And it, it ends up trapping people into defining themselves by their majors. Uh, it, I mean, and it's the same thing, honestly, if you look at it, if, if you're a computer sci uh, major at, at Stanford, it's probably the same exact thing. You're probably expected to go get a job somewhere in Silicon Valley. If you're a finance major at Penn, uh, you're expected to go do like finance or consulting on, in Boston or New York or uh, Chicago. And so your argument is not that doing those things is necessarily bad, but that getting Getting a degree at one of these elite schools, you know, you have to pick a major, getting a degree in that major at a a phase in your life where, because you haven't experienced much of the world, you probably don't yet know what you want to be doing. You're really closing a lot of doors prematurely. Right. People, people always tell you, oh, you know, you get a degree from, you know, you get a degree from Penn, you can write your own check in life. You open up all these doors. You're actually closing a lot of doors too. Um, you know, you might not be like formally closing them in the sense that uh, you, by ha- getting that degree, it's like, oh, now you're ineligible to go do X, Y, or Z. But there's some easily. path dependency and a lot there's of There's a lot of path dependency. And, yeah. So let the me ask issue, you as, oh, okay. You had a second issue. Go ahead. Well, there was another issue that we kind of started to touch on, kind of uh, gleaned away from it for a minute. And, and that's that not, not what, having a degree does psychologically to the person who has it. Uh, but so an, an internal kind of issue with having a degree, but there's an external issue as well. So let's say you get a degree from a, from an elite institution and you have a difficult time, you know, landing jobs through on-campus recruiting, or you don't have connections at certain firms where you can just land an internship easily. So you go and you, you apply for some more normal jobs, right? Uh, where most people who are applying for those jobs probably have a degree from an average school uh, or below average school, just something to get them past the application page on the website. There's a very good chance that somebody isn't going to hire you because they're going to view you as over-credentialed, mm. over-qualified for that job. And it's perfectly rational for them to do that, right? I'm not saying that people are like, oh, oh, you you went to you went to Cornell, you think you're better, you're so good that you can apply for this job. It's not that, it's not anything like that. It's more so, if you go to an elite institution like that, people have in their minds a certain kind of psychology of the student who attends a school like that, the things that they wanna do, the things they wanna achieve someday. And it makes it doesn't make sense for them to put resources into training that person, right? If yeah. they know that they're going to leave after uh, like two or three years. No, this, is, normally... actually, this is actually the, the negative signaling value of a, um, you know, perceived really valuable degree is actually a real problem that I've seen more and more. I've talked to a number of both, um, you know, graduates as well as business owners who have said a a graduate from a really good school recently told me, yeah, I really wanted this, this job. I don't remember what it was. It was like an entry level 35,000 job in an industry he liked and a company that he would like to, to try to work with. And, you know, for at least a couple of years and maybe longer, maybe build a career there. And, um, he said, I can't get anywhere. Uh, they keep, telling me, no, you're overqualified for this job. Um, no, we can't hire you because you'll be 
leaving really soon or demanding more pay. And, you know, you clearly, if you studied this at this great school, uh, this is not the kind of career you're looking for. Um, and, and he feels like he's like begging them to give them a chance despite his really powerful, uh, degree, which is a, a very, very interesting, um, you know, phenomena. So Zach, I want to ask you, um, as somebody who dropped out of an elite university, or we can call it opt out, opted out, uh, I think it has a, a better, uh, and more accurate connotation. Um, it's gotta be hard. I mean, it can't be easy. Like there, there have to be unique challenges that you face because of that. What's, what's the hardest part about it? I mean, it, it isn't easy. Um, it's worthwhile. It's definitely worthwhile. I wouldn't say that it's, it's not worthwhile, but I would at the same time say it's definitely not easy. Uh, the hardest part is this process that we, we talked about uh, before as well of de-schooling yourself, right? Uh, especially if you come from public schools or traditional schools, uh, you, so you weren't homeschooled and even then certain homeschools, uh, schooling can have a certain element of this in it too. Uh, you have to go through a certain period of de-schooling yourself, where it's normal for you to not get assignments, to not get due dates, uh, to not, you know, have to check grades, to actually have to figure out what the quality of your work is in the marketplace. <laughs> Even if that, if that marketplace is your friends, um, your coworkers, just your, the quality of your work you put out there, you're not just going to get it back uh, with a piece of paper that says A, B, or C, according to some very clearly and well-defined rubric. Uh, and, and I think that that process is, is definitely the hardest. And it's easier the more you just commit to opting out. If, if you're kind of on the fence and you're like, eh, I'm not sure, then you, you instinctively keep a sort of this schooled mind with you because you're going to need it if you end up going back to school. Uh, and then reschooling yourself, I think I haven't done it, but I would think it would be pretty difficult. So that process of, you know, realizing, oh, I, I can read what books I want to read. But that's kind of scary, right? Because your time is really worthwhile. It's like, I, I want to choose the best books, the books I'm going to get the most out of. Or, oh, I can choose which courses I want to take. Well, that, that's scary too. Like, should I take a Ruby, uh, like a Ruby on Rails course on uh, Codecademy? Or should I take a, a course on, you know, ancient Greek philosophy on like Coursera or something You're like that? You're forced to really get in touch with... Um you know, the value of your own time and the uh, yeah. opportunity cost of, of what you choose to pursue. You know, um, the, the Danish philosopher, Søren uh, Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Um, I never knew how to pronounce his first name, by the way. I've been calling I, him Søren. Oh, I, 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 I imagine it's like, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll trust you <laughs> something Danish. Um, it's like you you have a Danish in your mouth when you're saying it. So <laughs> that's a good rule of thumb. Um, no, I, I, I that kind of anxiety, that kind of like dizziness of of realizing, holy crap, I can build my own life the way I want to build it. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there are, there are, there are more tr like concrete things that you have to deal with, like people kind of like looking down their noses when you tell them uh, they might say something like, oh, so it wasn't either oh you're too good for college or oh uh, you couldn't just get through another two years to which if i really wanted to answer that i would just tell him you know i actually had really good grades and was excelling at the university and i could easily get through those two years but i had better things to do with my time <laughs> yeah, so you are too good for college you know, i mean you said <laughs> in short yeah you said about um you know people if they want to do it um 
they need to know and they need to really jump in with both feet. I think that's important for a couple reasons. Um, and again, I don't think you necessarily need to know like, okay, I need to have my entire five years, 10 years life mapped out. And if it's totally unclear, I should just default to college. Uh, I think they should know for sure that they want to go to college just as much as knowing for sure that they don't. But if you are going to, going to opt out and you're at all unsure or sort of of a divided mind about it, you're inevitably going to start to do something that I think is really destructive. And that is blame not going to college for your problems. And other people are going to do this uh, for you. Even if you don't, if you have a hard time getting a job and you didn't go to college, it'll be see, I told you so should have gone to school. Whereas if you go to school and have a hard time getting a job, uh, no one's going to say, see, you shouldn't have gone to college. <laughs> you know, you'll, it'll be easy to view that as the source of your problems. If you have any lack of clarity about what you want to do and just taking ownership and saying, Hey, this is where I'm going and I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. Oh, I want to ask you about opportunities. So, um, now obviously you work for me, you work with me at Praxis. And so you have, um, you know, you have a full-time job and I know you're doing many other uh, projects on the side and, and a lot of other things. So, um, you know, I don't want to pretend like, uh, you know, people may hear this and be like, Oh, of course, sure. It's easy for, for, uh, you know, Zach to say, no, no problem. You can succeed without a degree because he had a job lined up. Um, although that's not exactly how it worked, but, but let's say you weren't, let's say you weren't working, uh, for Praxis. Do you think you would have a shortage of opportunities to do the kind of things you want to do? I don't think I would. And I think I can, uh, extrapolate that further and apply to most people who come from a background like mine insofar as you you might think at first that you might not have those opportunities there because most of the opportunities that you've had through life are those that are lined up through school right uh so we talked earlier that the weird thing the weird cultural thing about a lot of these elite universities is that every student a lot of students in them view each step as kind of like a level of like a video game so like what objectives do i have to achieve for the next level uh if you're able to kind of break outside of that mentality and that's another part of what I call the schooled mind is that certain mentality. You got to switch to a Minecraft mentality where it's just an open sandbox and you can build whatever you want. Right. Where the world is modular, your options are modular. You can uh, build new things. You can add things to them. You know, uh, if I decide I want to do more on writing about education, I'll start publishing more blog posts on education and I'll start uh, sending them out to certain outlets and maybe get offered and get offered opportunities to publish regularly on those. I think that people underestimate their ability to create opportunities for themselves because, and, and, and through no fault of their own, I think uh, they, they've gone through, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of an institution where almost all of their opportunities are presented in front of them. Now they might have to strive to actually uh, be offered those, but they're there where I think in they're, the they're well-defined at least they're, they're well-defined. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's nothing, uh, there's nothing particularly scary or scary in a bad way about not having your opportunities well-defined. So long as you take responsibility over your own decisions, uh, I think that that kind of firmness in, resolving to create those opportunities will just come to you. Hmm. So what advice would you give to uh, fence sitters, people at maybe at an elite university or thinking about attending one who just, who, who hear what you're saying and it resonates and feel like they want to create their own path for themselves, feel like maybe they are too good for uh, this, this university system. What, what advice would you give? I mean, there are a couple of things I would say. The first uh, and the most soundbitey one I would say is just do it. Um, 
it, it gets so much greatest easier. ad campaign in history. <laughs> right. Uh, it gets so much easier mentally, uh, opportunity wise, even, you know, that you will probably go through a, a short part of a uh, period of anxiety where even, I could even say physically, um, if you just commit to doing it. If you sit on the fence, uh, it's going to gnaw at you, it's going to eat at you, and it's, it's going to be, even if you do end up carrying through with it, it it's going to be something that you would wish that you had jumped on earlier. Uh, two, I would say, you aren't alone. Um, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that, you know, a, a lot of people tend to be like, oh, you know, you couldn't get a job? Well, you should have gone to college. Uh, I, I kind of identify that with what I call the Steve Jobs fallacy of opting out of college, where people hold uh, college opt-outs to a weirdly higher standard than they do college graduates. So if you opt out of college, people expect you, like, like you better be Steve Jobs then, you better be Bill Gates, you better be Richard Branson. Uh, meanwhile, you know, a, a college grad from from Penn, if they land, you know, an upper middle class job, people are like, oh, okay, good, yay. Um, so just ignore that that kind of fallacy, right? If if you start creating these opportunities for yourself, you won't have to worry about, oh, am I meeting somebody's definition or standard of success? There are other people out there like you. Uh, there's me, you know, there's me, Derek, uh, who will be on later. A lot of our Praxis participants, uh, all the people who, a lot of the people who participate in like the Teal Fellowship, a lot of people who uh, do other things, you know, who have decided, you know, I'm too good for this, this, you know, run of the mill, quote unquote, elite education. You're not alone. I, I get that it can be really scary. Uh, I, I would just recommend that they, they realize that they just do it and they feel free to reach out to hubs of people of, of opt outs and reaching out to, you know, us here at Praxis is a good way of a good start. Zach, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You can check out Zach's website, ZachSlayback.com, and that's Zach spelled Z-A-K, Slayback.com. He also blogs weekly at blog.discoverpraxis.com. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. And next up, I'll be talking with Derek McGill. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Isaac. So Derek McGill is now joining me. Um, Derek runs his own marketing firm. Uh, he He's also in the Praxis program. And uh, he does a lot of freelance marketing work for a variety of really interesting clients, uh, including some work for for us with Praxis. Um, and you can find him at DerekMcGill.com. But Derek, like Zach before, dropped out of an elite university, uh, in this case, the University of Michigan. So I wanted to chat with him and get his experiences. Derek, uh, first, why did you go to college? You know, it was interesting because freshman year of high school, one of the first things I told my parents uh, was that I was never going to go to college. And I remember the way they looked at me and they just were so, I guess, upset, you know. <laughs> and over the next couple of years, I sort of forgot about that. I think I had like a really clear understanding that I just really hated school. Um, not education, but just, just the way school is run today. And somewhere during the high school process, I kind of got caught up in this idea of going to an elite university and having the hope that it was going to be a whole lot better than the high school experience and my middle school experience. And, you know, so I, I put in a lot of the time and then by senior year of high school, I was just totally over it again. 
but I'd already applied. And so I figured I'll just, I'll go to college for a little while. And I think in my mind, I already knew I was going to probably drop out, but I decided let's give it a shot. My parents really want me to do it, even though ironically, neither of them graduated college. Um, (laughs) They really wanted me to go. So I, I, I basically just decided I picked university of Michigan because it was the first school that accepted me. And I went out there. And when you got there, so you already had kind of a, I don't know, lowered expectations or a sense that this might not be the right fit for me. You were already, you were already in that mindset. When you got to University of Michigan, what was the reality like? How, how did it line up to those expectations? Was it uh, better than you imagined, worse? And, and, and what eventually led you to, to decide to drop out? It was unfortunately worse. Um, I came into school kind of not really expecting to use school as a way to get a job, using it really just as a way to get intellectual stimulation. I was majoring in classics. And so I decided, okay, I'm just going to go in. I'm just going to surround myself with people who, who like what I like and who really want to learn the subjects that I want to learn. And I'm not going to do it for the value of a job because I don't really think it matters. But the reality was the people in my classes and, and the way the professors taught, nobody really seemed to care at all. Um, you know, I was stuck in these, these general ed courses and these, uh, other kind of remedial starter courses that had no real substance to them. You know, the, the assignments were all very, very basic and it was, it, it, it became more about completing the assignment and about making sure you completed it with, a, with the exact requirements that they wanted. You know, you, you used the exact amount of quotes and the exact amount of you know citations. And I realized it's just, this is not what I want. I'm getting way more out of sitting in my dorm room reading books. And so that's what I did. I stopped going to class completely, basically, except for my finals. I uh, just stopped going. I would read inside. I, I did a lot of reading. I did more reading then than I ever did in my life. Um, and then I sat on Facebook all day uh, and learned Facebook advertising. And I just sit there and make little graphics for my club at the University of Michigan and figure out, okay, how am I going to grow our Facebook page? How am I going to advertise our events and and reach more people online and I just read a lot about that and instead of going to class that's what I did and so I sort of just fell in I think to the marketing <laughs> what, thing. What, what happened to your grades when you didn't go to class and you just did exams did they suffer a lot no they're actually better <laughs> so um, this is this is like the academic equivalent of office space where you don't yeah. actually quit you just stop going <laughs> yeah. no I, I, I it was funny because I, I I made the dean's list freshman year um, and I was like, well, is it just me or is it really this easy? And I think it really is this easy if you stop going to class because the class itself is what's unproductive. Like if you just sit in class, if you just sit in your dorm room and read the textbook, you'll get way more done than going to class in a much shorter amount of time. But often like by the time you're done with class, you're so tired that you don't want to do any more work. And I think that's where people start to mess up. Mm. That's funny. I, I almost, uh, as an undergrad, I almost took the opposite strategy because so well so for some classes they actually took attendance and like docked you if you didn't show up which seemed yeah. absurd to me like really insecure <laughs> professors but um i learned that in most classes you had the option you could either read the textbook or hear the lecture but doing both was redundant and in some classes the professor actually wrote the textbook and just lectured like word for word from the chapters and yep. so um i was really cheap and the textbooks were really expensive. And so I didn't buy any textbooks my last two years of college, uh, <laughs> not a single one. And uh, my grades were just fine. <laughs> so you you took the opposite approach. You're like, look, I'm here. Uh, I've got the time to read this stuff. I don't want to go sit in that class. So um, 
you, you were getting some intellectual stimulation on your own and then going and teaching yourself this, this Facebook stuff. I mean, what prompted you to do that? Did you already know you had an interest in marketing? No, I, I really didn't at all. Um, what happened was I was running this club at the University of Michigan, the Young Americans for Liberty Club. And that kind of became the sole reason I stayed in college for so long because I was actually having a good time with that. And I found that all of my extracurricular activities, I, I was actually benefiting from. I was meeting a lot of great people. Um, I met you through that. And I, I like how you, you said know, great people and me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, so I, uh, I was running this Facebook page for the group and I, I kind of made it a challenge to myself to make the most actively engaged and the most followed uh, student Facebook group in the country, at least within our, uh, our kind of audience. And that's what we became. We, we, we had the largest Facebook presence. We had by far the largest following. And that was really how it started. It was just making like graphics online to share with the students on campus and, and trying to get other students to care about the issues that we cared about. Um, so it wasn't really something I had an interest in. I just developed it through my interest in my club. Hmm. So that, that, that impetus, the uh, interest in building something, creating something, uh, helping spread ideas that you thought were interesting is what led you to gain that sort of special skill set that you now are, um, you know, offering to other companies and are doing uh, essentially for, for a living. That's, that's pretty cool. And I think that's kind of the way ideally that the best learning happens is you're pursuing something you enjoy. And in order to achieve it, you find that it's necessary to acquire some skills along the way. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, tell me, I mean, do you think, do you think you're missing anything or lacking anything um, since you since you left? Or, or actually, first walk me through uh, the process of leaving. What what made you finally say it's not worth it anymore? Some various in South sophomore year, I had some professors. It was in the upper level courses. This is when I, I really expected the upper level courses to be better. I thought, okay, I, I'm I'm through these general eds. Let me give it one more chance because I was not going to go back sophomore year. Uh, I spent uh, the summer of freshman year in Rome studying and I was almost ready just not to come back. I figured I'm just gonna stay here and just kind of read on my own and travel a bit. I came back because my parents convinced me and I realized really quickly again, these classes were no better and in many ways they're even worse. And uh, I looked at these teachers who, who specialized in these fields. I was taking a lot of history courses, but then lacked all knowledge of anything outside of their narrow discipline. And so there was no real way for them to integrate any of their knowledge. And so they were able to make these, in my opinion, sort of outrageous claims. And, and then, of course, you know, the students in the classes, again, just did not really seem engaged. It was like everyone there was there to be there because they knew they had to be there. It, it's a weird feeling when you realize, you know, because, I mean, and if you, if you subscribe to the signaling theory of, of higher education, which I think is, is very compelling, that most people are actually purchasing the signal, not really the knowledge or the whole, the rest of the experience. But it, it, we all have sort of been taught that, well, people are purchasing all this knowledge and the professors are the service providers and the customers are the students. But it's really bizarre. A friend of mine recently said, if that was true, it'd be the only good in which you pay up front and then you're happy when the service isn't provided. Like when a professor <laughs> says, you know, there's not going to be class today. Everyone's happy. Like I know. they actually view sitting in class as a cost they have to pay in order to get the piece of paper. And so if you really are truly interested in the knowledge, the learning itself, 
it's not that there's not professors who, um, you know, some of them are wise and some of them are, are good teachers, but you're in an environment where most people see the classroom as a cost they have to pay. They're not looking forward to it, which is not a very exciting, conducive environment for intellectual stimulation. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I haven't thought of that, but uh, you're absolutely right. And the professors see it too. Even the good professors, they see that the rest of the students consider being there a cost. And so they treat everybody like that, you know, unless you really, really go out of your way to try to engage them. But even then, it's not always the case that they're willing to engage you back. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got through kind of midway through semester. I stopped, I stopped going again to class. And the finals were coming up. And I had this opportunity to go to Texas to attend a Christmas party held by Ron Paul and his wife. Um, and it happened to be on the same day of my finals. And so I bought a ticket, uh, I bought the, the admission ticket to the Ron Paul Christmas party and, and I'd always wanted to meet him, but it was still was kind of a hard decision to make. And then the day of my finals, you know, I'd been studying all night and something gave me to snap. I realized just why am I doing this? You know, I don't want to take these finals. I don't like the material I'm studying. I know it's going to be another multiple choice test. So I drove to the airport, bought a ticket right there and flew to Texas <laughs> uh, and skipped my finals. And this was uh, the fall semester. And, yeah. and you never went back? No, I, I did go back again. See, this is a long process. I went back again after the winter semester uh, for the winter semester. And uh, my parents again convinced me. And this time I was on academic probation. <laughs> so I signed up for all these classes again. You know, didn't really go much. Kind of, I, I engaged better for a little while, but then again, it just it got to me more and more how much time I was wasting. And at this time, I started doing, um, I started selling T-shirts online through a website called Teespring, and I would launch those. They were like gun-related shirts because my parents were in the firearms industry, and I would launch them on our social media channels, and I'd sell like a thousand dollars a month worth of T-shirts. And I realized like that was like so much more fulfilling. Like it's, it's like it's almost addicting to be able to like make a design and sell it to people and have them, you know, send you a nice email and say, I really love the shirt. And I realized like that is so much more fulfilling than having a professor tell me that they liked my essay <laughs> that no one else is ever going to read. Um, there, there's something there's something especially fulfilling about getting people to do more than give you something that's free, like their praise yeah. or their good opinion, or, Hey Derek, that's a great idea. Oh, I love that t-shirt design. When they actually part with their resources for it and they, they signify, I value this. And you see the money you earn is like, wow, I've created value in the world. People voluntarily are choosing to pay me for this. There's a kind of fulfillment there and a learning and an excitement um, that can't be replicated. No, no, I agree. And, and once I tasted it, I, I, I couldn't get enough. And so I couldn't shake this feeling like, okay, I need to do more of this. And college is stopping me, not just because of the time. It was more, I think, being on campus fosters a sort of attitude of laziness. And I felt that affecting me. Um, that's my fault for letting it. But at the same time, I was getting used to waking up really late, staying out late, kind of wasting a lot of time. And then spending a lot of time, too, just pondering my own misery there at college. Um, you know, it was really cold, too, and stuff like that. And so again, winter time in Michigan is a good time to ponder your own. <laughs> it's like you'd become like a Russian novelist to cope with it or something. Exactly. I, I definitely felt like that. And then, you know, I think the, the finals came up again and I just decided this time I'm just not going to go. Uh, I, I, I know if I don't go again, I won't be allowed to come back. And this was sort of like my escape. 
And so I, I just didn't go. I, I flew home to San Diego and started working basically immediately with my father's company. It's, and, it's uh, like that scene from, uh, what is it? The, the dark Knight rises that you, <laughs> you, you, you can only make the jump if you don't have a rope and you know yeah. that falling will mean you die. You know, now you can't go back. <laughs> There's no option. <laughs> you have to. So were your parents upset? No, actually not. They were very supportive. By that time I had sort of convinced them, uh, that I was not getting the most value for our money and that I was also just really just not having a good time. Um, so by then they were actually, you know, very happy that I was coming back and they haven't really questioned the decision since now. I basically, I, every week my father and I talk about what a waste of time it is and how glad he is that I left. And, you know, it's, it's been really, really great. And I'm lucky to have that because I know a lot of parents are not so supportive. Yeah. Well, what's been, I mean, so you have to have some, I imagine, uh, some challenges that you face because somebody your age without a degree is a bit of an anomaly. What have been the hardest parts about it? You know, surprisingly, everyone has been very supportive. I think this is sort of like the irony of the whole, uh, the whole thing right now is with higher education is that most people recognize that it's not worth the time. And -hmm. most people will even encourage, uh, at least the people that I've met have encouraged my choices, but at the same time, they'll never make them themselves. Yeah. Yeah, There's sort of, there's sort of a weird, um, envy or a, or a living vicariously. I noticed when I first launched Praxis, I would be at events sometimes and talking to people. And probably the number one thing I get to this day, people that come up to me and say, young people, I love what you're doing. This is so cool. Um, keep doing it. I tell people about it all the time. I wish I could do it. And they have like a pain, like a sadness <laughs> in yeah. their eyes. I know. And there's just so many people that have this belief like, Wow, good for them. They got out of town, you know, uh, and did something exciting. Man, I wish I could. And they just feel like they can't. I mean, what what do you say to people who who have that feeling, who feel like they can't? I try to show them just examples. You know, you, you can. I just I tell them my own life a little bit. I, I uh, there's nothing special that I have done that makes me like I guess an outsider necessarily. It's really just about taking that leap and. There's really, after a certain point, there's not so much you can say because I think they realize that your advice is correct. Um, You know, I I was reading The Fountainhead the other day. It's one of my favorite books. And the character Howard Rourke has a conversation with Peter Keating over whether Peter should go to, uh, you know, graduate school, basically, for architecture. And Peter says, you know, I want your advice, Howard, because I value it more than anyone's, but I know I'm going to follow the dean's advice. Hmm. And I thought that was really interesting um, because that's sort of how... I think at least my conversations usually go as well. It's like, yes, they want, they want what I'm, what I'm doing now and they want to leave school and they're miserable at school, but they're going to listen to their parents anyway, for no reason other than the fact that they're their parents or for no other reason than the fact that uh, majority of people think that they should do uh, what they're doing now. I think one of the hardest things is getting to, I mean, it's, it sounds cheesy and cliche, but get, getting to know yourself, you know, really examining your own preferences and interests in life. And, and sometimes when you do that, you find things that you don't like and you have to yes. kind of be honest about it. Like, Oh, I'm, I guess I'm a little lazier than I thought, or, Oh, I guess I'm a little more fearful than I thought. And there's a, there's an extent to which anything that kind of obscures or delays the process of getting to know yourself is attractive. And you can always tell yourself, well, let me just, let me just do this for a while and that will help me no matter what I do. And then, and then maybe I'll kind of get to know myself as I'm doing it and figure out where I want to go. 
but when you have that thought of I might drop out of college or skip college, it puts you in a position where you're forced a little bit more because society almost forces your hand. There's a higher expectation on you. It's like, yeah. well, you know, Zach and I were talking about this. Well, you better be Steve Jobs or what are you going to do? You've got to have some answer. You're kind of forced to confront yourself and really examine, okay, what do I want to do? What, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I'd rather do X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's really hard. And it's really scary sometimes because, um, not only is it hard to figure out what, what you really are and what you're interested in, but sometimes you don't like what you find <laughs> and, yep. and, and you might be forced to say, okay, now I've discovered that my real passion is X. Well, crap. Now I got to actually do it. You know, that's, it's, it's almost, uh, it's almost harder to, to know, uh, yourself than to not, because then you, you feel kind of accountable to, to go about making that happen. Well, let me ask you just in practical terms as you know, an, a non-degreed young person out there forging your way in the world and, and doing, and doing quite well, um, are there like rules of thumb or habits or, uh, mindsets that you have found helpful? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and some of it will go back to the point that you just made. It's, you really have to consciously define what you want and then put yourself in a position to learn, at least to find that out. And then you have to, you have to be able to confront the, the dark truths about yourself. Typically, like for me, example, I was lazier. I was less self-directed. Uh, less self-motivated and also just kind of, I, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted as much as I thought I did. And I think college and, and school in general had become an excuse for inaction. Um, but, but once you get there, once you get past some of that stuff, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it has, I think it has very little to do, do, to the, do with the degree itself because I ha no one's ever asked me and no one ever seems to be, to be bothered by it. It's really just about treating yourself professionally in all situations and, expecting to be treated that way in return. And people will, will rally to that, I think. And they'll see that sort of in your mannerisms. And then once, once you're there, they, they won't really care whether you have a degree because you've built that sort of trust and they see you as a professional. Um, give, give me an example of treating yourself professionally. Cause I, I think it's pretty easy for people to imagine how to treat others professionally, but what do you mean by treating yourself professionally? You know, being able to talk about your work enthusiastically is, is a big part of it. And being able to, I think, to talk about yourself in a way that you're not, you're not lying. I mean, you, you like, for example, I didn't really have a huge portfolio when I started working with people. Um, and so that was part of the, the hiccup for me. It was like, okay, how do I, how do I sell myself when I really only have a very limited experience and I have no degree? Uh, <clears throat> and it was about being able to showcase the things that I have done and present them in a way that is, goes above and beyond what a typical company will do. Um, so rather than trying to just, I think over like sell someone on, on my services and stuff like that, really just, just show them exactly what I've done and then talk about it really enthusiastically, you know, and, and, and make it so it's like, okay, this is part of my life. This is exactly, you know, what I want to be doing and this is how I'm going to help you. Um, and that, you know, that kind of pride in your own, uh, work and abilities, I think is something that you can't fake you you can you can have it and be afraid to let it show and learning to let it show and and talk openly and excitedly about your work is really important but if you don't actually have that pride i don't think you can manufacture it very well and, and the only way to get it is to actually have done some things i'm sure you yep. experienced this with your groups you know having launched that facebook page and and made it as big as you did and making events with a lot of people turn out like there's a pride you got from doing that in the real world that can't be replaced by 
uh, I studied this and this institution told me I was good at this. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, it, I see this with my own children all the time. There's nothing that can replace the genuine self-esteem, self-confidence they have from, you know, trying to ride their bike or make a basket on the basketball hoop over and over again and doing it. There's nothing that I can say, you know, if I say to them, you're a really good artist, that doesn't give them that same kind of pride and self-esteem than when they struggle and accomplish something. And so having, having actually built things, it just gives you the confidence to say, I can do this. I'm really good at this. And I think that's really important. I think that's probably the most important point about why college was at least tough for me is because you're not forced to actually build anything or create anything. Um, and it's not even about, it's not even about being the best or creating anything that's, that's the best. It's just about creating it and putting it out there for someone else to see and someone else to get some kind of value out of it. And if you're able to do that, just that, you know, you have, it's, it's such a mindset change. You know, suddenly you go from the student to the teacher basically. Um, and, you know, having that, yeah, you're right. You can't, you can't fake it. So if you just create anything, it doesn't really matter what it is, but if you just do it and then move on and do the next thing and just move on and do the next thing, your confidence is going to increase. And then suddenly you find yourself able to treat yourself professionally, whether you're, you know, whether you're actively thinking about it or not. Any, uh, any thinkers or books or articles, um, that you recommend for people who are, you know, on the fence and, and considering maybe creating, creating their own path? Yeah, man, I love The Fountainhead uh, as a as a fiction book. I think that's one of my favorite books. It's, it's kind of you know it's about a guy who drops out of college and, and forges ahead his own path and meets a lot of opposition in the way, but he has this kind of unrelenting vision uh, to what he wants to accomplish and won't compromise that for uh, what anyone else says. Uh, other ones, I tend to say like the, the self help books are okay. You know, I mean, I like Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week is fun. Um, it's a little bit, I think, a little bit uh, fantastical, but it is a good book. But the, the ones that I've gotten the most value out of have been things like the essays by Mikhail de Montaigne, uh, letters to us uh, from a Stoic by Seneca, stuff like that. I've, I've got that on my desk right now today, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> stuff like that has been more beneficial to me than any more, I mean, any more modern business self-help books. Yeah. yeah it, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I tend to agree with you that um, anything that is explicitly says this is going to help you i usually find less helpful than yeah. stuff that's just like really interesting deep thinking people in almost any area um I, I would rather read that than someone who's explicitly setting out uh to help me yeah exactly and, and i think the biggest piece of advice that i got was i mean mikhail de montaigne's essay uh, on solitude is one of my favorite uh essays ever written and he said in it essentially you can take yourself out of the crowd but you you can't really change until you take the crowd out of you. Um, and that was really important for me kind of understanding because I, I had this moment when I was leaving college, I thought, okay, once I leave college, everything is going to be better. But that's simply not the case. There's actually, there's a de-schooling period and you have to be willing to do the work to remove those bad parts of you that have been sort of hardwired into you from you know 18 years of schooling. And it's a lot of work, you know, it's not something that if you just remove yourself from college, you're going to suddenly know what you want to do, or you're going to suddenly be a productive individual. Quite often, it's actually, there's a period where it gets worse. Derek, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Isaac. <laughs>